Okay, so as I said, this will be um, a historical background of Christianity and of Jesus himself to the extent that we can figure it out. And it is once again a little sacrilegious probably because I'm going to be questioning some of the standard knowledge that we have about him and it will be things that you're familiar with. It's nothing too obscure. Um, so we're going to start back in Bereshit where everything began in our history class, which is in the Tanakh. Now we talked last week, we talked last week about uh, the Torah and the five books of Moses and how it evolved. But the Tanakh, as you know, is the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are... Um, the writings, and there's 24 books, and they were all in a rough form by the year zero. And what that means is everybody who had any kind of involvement with turn of the millennium Christianity knew these books. Okay, so we'll keep that in the back of our minds. This is not a religion that grew out of nowhere. It grew out of roots that we knew about, that they knew about. Okay, so this is where we have to include all of the Tanakh, and you will see why, because the prophetic writings become very, very important as far as Christianity goes and as far as predictions. So once again, to confuse everybody, I've put up a timeline and it's negative numbers, but we're going to be in the positive numbers. So we know that polytheism started about here to about 1200 BCE. And then in this area, we the, the Jewish people switched to one God. They began to believe in one God. And in this time frame is when the Tanakh began to be put together. Okay? The time period we are going to be talking about today is in here. 
And the reason I drew this line here was in theory, that's the year zero. It's an arbitrary number based on when Christianity determined when 300 years into Christianity, they determined the birth date of Jesus. So we've all decided in the world to agree on that, okay? So it's either called Anna Domine, the year of our Lord, or we call it the common era, okay? So from here on, we're in the year 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. We don't have to worry about BC, BCE, okay? So today we're gonna to talk about this area, the birth of Jesus, which gives rise to Christianity. All of Christianity, to begin with, is found in the New Testament. The New Testament, of course, is called that because it is in contrast with the Old Testament. You will never hear Jews talk about the Old Testament. The Jews talk about the Tanakh, right? The first 20, the 24 books of our Bible. For Christians, the Bible is the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it, the reason I want to make that, I don't want to, you know, be simplistic here, but I want you to understand that the New Testament builds on the Old Testament. It's not a book just by itself. Okay? Is that clear to everyone? <laughs> okay. Um, so, the reason this time period is so interesting to me is because not only did Jesus have a lot of documentation about him in the New Testament, but there are also legitimate historical writings that mention him. They don't mention him as a Messiah, but as a leader. And they also talk about Jesus and the whole time period of the, of the rebellion of the Jews. And that's very important that there were rebellions going on. So the most prominent of the historians is a Jewish guy by the name of Josephus. And he wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. The thing about Josephus, he was Jewish, but he got himself in good with the emperor of Rome. So he was kind of like the historian of Judea for the emperor, which means he had some protexia. He could be sort of an outsider, but he was really an insider as a Jew. The other person I wrote a 90-page paper on is named Publius Tacitus. He was not Jewish. He was a senator, which meant he was more of a patrician in the Roman, um, the Roman Empire. And he wrote also about the time period. And you can see that he lived in the first century common era, as did Josephus. Okay? All right. So that is who we're going to use to put together some of the information. So let's talk a little bit about the Middle East once again. And this time we're going to talk about the Roman Empire very briefly. The Roman Empire began with Julius Caesar, basically, when he became king, the, or Caesar. 
the area that you see here is after the fall of the Second Temple. It was a huge monolithic empire that needed to be uh, controlled, overseen, governed by the Romans. The Romans, of course, had their headquarters in Rome. But they sent out both soldiers and sort of local governors to each of these provinces in order to guard over them and to protect them and to gather taxes from them. Now, where's Israel in relation to this? You all know, but I'm going to show you that there's our friend Judea, and they called it Judea then. Um, Judea is then and now the crossroads of the merchandise. It's a crossroads of all of the travel. So especially, there's no airplanes, right? When you think about anybody that was going to conquer from here, that was going to conquer this area, they had to go through here. So this would be a very significant piece of land for them to own. Not really for its wealth, but mostly for its transportation route. And the same goes for this. And we know, for example, that in World War II, right, they came this way and they went up into Italy, but this is a land route. And it's a land route for Alexander the Great, who went from Greece this way. It's really located kind of in a very prominent location, as small and as sort of inconsequential as you might think. So it was important to own that stretch of, of land. Okay, I am going to give you for about 30 seconds a timeline. It is in your notes, so you, no memorization necessary. But what you need to know is that Judea was on its own under the Hasmonean dynasty, which is what we celebrate Hanukkah for. They had their own king. That was about 200 years worth of self-rule. And then they were conquered by the Romans. Okay, so the next self-rule that happened in Judea was 1948, right? We, there are kings, literally, of Judah Maccabee's family, Mattathias' family, who ruled Judea. But after that, it was controlled first by the Romans, then by the Babylonians, then etc., etc., throughout history. So, the subjugation of Judea began in the 60s before the Common Era, and the prominent king that we know about and we've all heard about, and if you've been to Israel, you see a lot of what he did, was King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great built all kinds of things. He was extremely well-known for his public works projects. The things that you have heard of are Masada, which was a fortress, Herodian, which is where his palace was, and that's south of Jerusalem, and the temple. He didn't build the temple, but he made it lavish. Now Herod was the king, and he was Jewish, but he was 
a convert. And what I mean by that is a few hundred years before, one group of people named the Edomites were forcibly converted by the Jews. Did you know that? The only group that was ever forcibly converted. He was a descendant of them. He was Jewish. But his, he really threw his lot in with the Romans because he got money from them and he wanted all these building projects and he had quite the ego. So when King Herod died, he left the kingdom of Judea, again, under the Romans. King Herod was a king, but he was more of a vassal who reported to the Romans. Then when Herod died, he divided the country or the territory of Judea up into three hunks. Samaria, the Galilee, and down here, which was like Judea, Idumea. And Idumea was where the Edomites had lived and where they had been conquered. Okay. So what King Herod did is he said, I have three boys. I'm going to leave a little section of Judea to each boy. So there was a guy named Philip, a guy named Herod Antipas, and a guy named Herod Archelaus. It makes no difference who they were because they were all, except for one, not good at their jobs. However, they did build some capitals in their little territories. So the capital of Samaria was Caesarea. The capital of the Judea area was Jerusalem. Oh, there it is. Okay. The capital of the Galilee was Tiber Tiberia, Tiberias. Okay. So the, so the country was, you know, we're not talking borders. We're just talking areas of governance by these three not-so-wonderful rulers. These rulers all had to pay homage to the Romans. They were subservient to the Romans. Their father had had a big presence. These people were incompetent, so much so that one of them was kicked out of office, and he was the guy that was in charge of Jerusalem. He just, he was terrible. So you had these three sections, and you had three capitals. When the three boys, boys, when the three men took over, and we're talking a little bit before the year zero and then after the year zero, everything began to come apart because they were not very good rulers. They, their job was to somehow represent Rome at the same time being the leader of the Jews. The way they represented Rome was to demand taxes. Now, Mosaic law forbids the use of coins with an emperor on it because, or a pagan god. That's the, um, Moses, the law of Moses, Jew, Jewish law. So the Jews were not allowed to use, they couldn't by Jewish law use Roman coins 
they used their own coins when they were in Jerusalem, which the Romans were not thrilled about, but okay, that was fine. The Jews did not know what to think of the Romans. They actually, oh, and here I wanted to, sorry, I wanted to show you Caesarea and Tiberia, which were the most important. Jerusalem was not as important as a capital. Jerusalem was important as the location of the temple. And we will get to that in a second. So, what the people have, there are, there are different groupings of people sociologically as there are, I suppose, throughout history. There are the people who control government, the big business guys. Also, the Romans were part of them. There are the merchant class, which is kind of an upper middle class. And then there's the farmers, the people of the land. And they're really dependent on what we have on in the land. So the Jewish people began to be taxed. And as they were taxed, they taxed, the, the taxes began to impact their lives. And as a result, just like the American Revolution or any place else, rebellions and revolts began against the Romans. The situation, especially for farmers and peasants, got worse and worse because small family farms, which had served as the basis of the rural economy, basically, were, it sounds like here, but were swallowed up by large estates that were in cahoots with the Romans, and there was rapid urbanization as well. Big cities attracted a lot of people, and there was a tremendous amount of anger on the part of the Jewish people throughout Judea. We're talking, again, around the year zero. Now, before we go any further about these rebellions, because they began to launch a wave of attacks against both the Jewish aristocracy and the Romans. And I'm going to call the Jewish aristocracy collaborators, basically. They were getting payoffs. They, it was in their interest to have the taxes collected. These re rebels roamed through the provinces. They were heroes to the poor. They were symbols of religious zeal. And they opposed any compromise with the Romans whatsoever. So it was pretty chaotic in Judea. So now what historians have done is they've really divided groupings of sects of the Jews in first century Judea. And you've probably heard of these, but let's, let's just clarify them. One group was called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the middle class, basically, or the lower class. And they were the ones that followed Jewish law the most. They were the everyday people. They weren't particularly wealthy. These were Jesus's people. And now we just have to file that in the back of our minds. But these were Jesus's people. These are the, the sort of, um, not the bourgeois, but the people of the land and the people who were getting trod upon. The rebellions came from them. 
the reason I mention about Jesus is because the word Pharisees appears a lot in the New Testament. A lot. Okay, well, who weren't the Pharisees but the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the upper class, they were wealthy, they were landowners, and most importantly, they were the priests. The priests of the temple in Jerusalem was a, it was sort of a hereditary position, but it had to be appointed by the Roman governor which meant appointed by the emperor and then passed on to the governor who was in charge of the area. These priests had no scholarly background whatsoever. It was a family title, but they had tremendous power because they controlled the rituals and rites of the temple. And they aggregated a lot of wealth because when people came to let's say make a sacrifice or ask a sacrifice to be made there was payoff so these people were on the take yes right more like that except the Pope sort of was its own government the Sadducees really had they had to be part and parcel of the Roman government at the same time. And that was fine. I mean, they, the Roman government was secular. Sadducees were religious. Made no difference. Okay? So the priests were beholden. It's kind of awful when you think about it, but the priests were beholden to the Romans and their vestments and the gold. I mean, when we see the descriptions of the temple, and that wasn't a description of the temple that after Herod fixed it up. Tremendous wealth. So they were appointed. It was to their advantage to be friendly with the Romans. And then, by the way, there is another group of people. We don't see them very much. <laughs> in fact, people have mostly um, found out about them in the last, I don't know, 50, 75 years, and that's the Essenes. The Essenes, the people in the Dead Sea, near the Dead Sea. Oh, and my phone's on, sorry. Um, um, they were monastic. They separated themselves from the authority of the temple, which meant that any laws that were created after the, the Jewish laws were put together in the Torah, like the oral law, they didn't follow. They seem to have lived by the Dead Sea in caves, separate, monastic, and we really only learned about them because the Dead Sea Scrolls surfaced. Yes? Um, I, they know probably there are um, prophetic works and there are psalms and things like that, but no, but not oral law. Okay, so the Tanakh, the piece of the the scraps that they're finding are biblical in the in the Old Testament sense, in the Tanakh sense. Okay, yes, without the Talmudic. Okay, so 
they were not part of the mainstream. And we really only know about them now from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were only really discovered in the last 70, 80 years. And then studied and then pieced together. Okay? So th this is the groupings that you see. Now you have sort of a sociological setup for something that might not end well. Except that there was a prediction that something could end well. And that was the prediction in Isaiah, which is in Prophets, okay, about something called the end of days. And it shall be at the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be firmly established at the top of the mountains, and it shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. In other words, after there is going to be an end of the world where everything is going to be perfect. And there are a number of references to that throughout the prophets, Nevi'im. So these predictions were predicting the coming of basically of the end of the world. Now the original reason for Isaiah to start talking about that, by the way, back into our, our Old Testament, if you will, is he was very angry about the Babylonian exile. And he said to the Jews, you messed up. The end of times is going to come. You need to shape up, follow the laws, go back to the land of Israel, and regroup. So he's exhorting them to be better Jews. However, this was interpreted as you know what? Life is pretty ugly and terrible right now in Judea. But maybe the end of days is coming, and that's going to solve things. So let's discuss the words Messiah and Moshiach, which are two different words. You see? I am set, right? Okay. There is no discussion of the word Messiah or Moshiach in the Tanakh. None. There is not a man that will save us or a prophet that will save the Jews or save the world. Nothing. So it's predictions like with, that was in Isaiah that the end of times is coming. Or there might be somebody that represents the end of days. Mashiach doesn't exist. It came afterwards and certainly is a very big presence in a number of parts of Judaism, right? How about Eliyahu? He was, he's supposed to be the predecessor. He's like the announcer. <laughs> if he comes back, you know, because he... He sort of didn't die. He went to heaven in the chariot of fire and, right? So he would be the sort of announcer, the presage of the coming of the Messiah. That's why he pops up in, all, in hundreds of stories throughout Jewish history um, as a guy who's very poor and they invite him in and turns out to be Elijah and, okay? So... 
So that's um, the coming, but the coming of the Messiah, of the Mashiach, that's the first word, is a fundamental principle of Judaism. Because you've all heard of it, because the eventual coming of the Mashiach is a basic, fundamental part of our prayer. It's in Rambam's 13 Principles of Faith, Maimonides' 13 Principles of Faith. It is mentioned in the Shemona Esrei three times a day. Um, it is, we pray for the coming of the Messiah, the ingathering of the exiles, the restoration of the religious courts of justice. It's part of Judaism, but it's vague. So, I want to compare these words now. Mashiach comes from the Shoresh, Mem Chet, which means to anoint. When a king was, became a king, starting with Saul, they were anointed with holy oil. That made them special. That's the word. That's where it comes from. Okay? So the word Mashiach, which can be translated Messiah, and was translated that way when the New Testament turned into Greek, it happened because this person would be anointed by God. So that makes sense. It's a different word to say Mashiach. That means savior. And those words became conflated. Okay? So that later on in Christianity, you could sort of move them together and the person who became the Messiah also was the savior. But there are two different words in Hebrew. And there's no person ever called this in the, in the Tanakh. However, this was a very prevailing theory of life in first century Judea. Became really prominent. So what is the Mashiach supposed to do? What is this Messiah, what is this end of days person that's coming supposed to do? Because these Pharisees, the people that were poor, the people that were suffering, they had to cling to something. So what would the Mashiach do? The Mashiach would free the Jews from occupation from the Romans. They would establish God's rule in Jerusalem. They would, um, the Messiah would be a restorative figure, would restore the Jews back to power and glory. That is why there is a group of Jews to this day that say the land of Israel is not legitimate because it has not been established by the Messiah. They live there, but it's not legitimate. It was, it's been formed by human beings, and until the Messiah comes and presents the land to the Jews, it's not legitimate. Everyone follow that? Okay. Other people sort of looked at the Mashiach or this person that would come at, in more apocalyptic terms, like the end of days would be coming. It wouldn't only be political. It wouldn't be 
giving the Jews back power in their land. It would be an end of days situation. And also, that person needed to be descended from the, excuse me, the house of David. Very important, keep that in mind. I have in your handouts a lot of predictions from the prophets. I didn't put them all into the presentation, but if you see quotations from the Tanakh and the New Testament, which is on page three, it says the messianic predictions of Isaiah, the messianic predictions of Jeremiah, twice, behold, days are coming, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, that means his descendants, okay? So, this is the Tanakh predicting a Messiah. Prophecy of the world to come. Again, Isaiah, this is page three. And now we'll come to the controversial parts. So the people who are roaming the land creating havoc, are doing it twofold. They're trying to get rid of the Romans. It's an honest-to-God revolt, fighting against the Roman legions, sort of a la the Maccabees, you know, small groups of people and trying to get rid of these very well-armed Romans. But it also took on a religious piece. And some of the people who were leading the revolutions, the rebellions, called themselves Messiah, called themselves the harbinger of the end of days, and gathered followings. And these people created havoc for the Romans because they were leaders of rebellions. And when these people were caught, there was a guy named Hezekiah. There was another guy named Judas, not the Judas that we know from, from Jesus. They were pretend messiahs. They were revolutionaries. They were, um, who's the guy that was in Waco? David Koresh, when, when he had that cult thing and everyone thought he was bringing the end of that, sort of like that. Okay, they would get following followers, they would say that they were the leaders, and they had to throw off the yoke of the Romans. When they were caught by the Romans, they were punished. That was the Roman method of execution. Wasn't lethal injection, wasn't the Jewish way of killing. Do you know what the Jewish way of execution is? stoning. Very important to remember that. Okay? Roman method of execution. And they would do it, um, a lot of people, because it made a greater impact. It, it was really for effect, because you could probably execute somebody a lot faster. This is as an example. So when they caught Hezekiah, who was running around saying he was the Messiah and he was going to establish a new kingdom and he was overthrowing the Romans and they caught him, he needed to be an example. And a tax revolt was led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. 
He claimed the throne of King David for himself. He was ultimately also killed by the Romans. There was a man named Simon. He was a rebel leader. He claimed to be the harbinger of, of days to come. So there were riots, there were protests. The, this is one reason the sons of Herod couldn't deal with it. It was just chaotic. So now we have a punishment for the, for the act of treason. And now is where the New Testament begins. The period of history that I'm describing isn't really in the New Testament, but it's causing the things in the New Testament. So it's really between the Tanakh and the story of Jesus. The, the, the New Testament is, in fact, the stories and the sayings and the um, sort of anecdotes about Jesus. That's what the New Testament is. We have an interesting side note as to who wrote it, but we'll get to that in a minute. So now enter Jesus. Who was Jesus? Well, to start with, he was a Pharisee. We know that he was a man of the people. He was probably illiterate. And he had no contact with religion or any religious figures of any kind until he was 30 years old. He wasn't like Hezekiah, who said, revolt against the Romans, take up your arms, and oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah at the same time. Not that kind of guy. In fact, very low-key. And this we're getting from Josephus, from Tacitus the historian, and from the New Testament, which is somewhat questionable, but we can piece it together. So Jesus was not a prophet. He was not born sort of, he was not born into a famous family, let's say that. And in fact, in the New Testament itself, in the Gospel of John, it says, have the authorities really concluded that he, Jesus, is Christ? Because we know where this man is from, Jesus, and when Christ, or the Messiah, Christ is the Greek word, Christus, for Messiah. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. He'll just, it could be anybody. And that's actually what the rabbis said, too. Anybody could be the Messiah. So you need to treat everybody well. And then the saying goes, if he dies, you know he wasn't the Messiah. Okay, so now a pop quiz. Where was Jesus born? All together now? Okay. So, I'll just throw this one out at you. Right, exactly. 2,000 years of Bethlehem and malls and anything else that, and songs. No, you know where I think he was born and the historical um, discussions lead to? I think he was born in Nazareth. 
Why is that? He's only called in the New Testament Jesus the Nazarene. He's never called Bethlehem from Bethlehem. The truth is he never lived in Bethlehem. He worked in the area of Beth of Nazareth. In fact, he worked in the Galilee when he began preaching. It was all in the north. Now still that doesn't prove to you that he wasn't born in Bethlehem. You're just I'm just making it up as I go along, perhaps. In the first century, Jesus Nazareth was a yes. There's Nazareth. Bethlehem is further south. It's pretty close to Jerusalem, actually. It's under the Palestinian Authority. It's in Area A. <laughs> it's controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Okay, which is fine. I, I don't, you know, but that's, that's where it is. It's part of the West Bank, but Area A. Okay, so we're up north here where Nazareth is. And let's pursue that for a minute. This was a very dull town in the first century. This is a town that was barely mentioned on the map. However, there was a very, very, very large city within walking distance, which is how you got places, called Sepphoris. And there's a huge archaeological um, discovery of the town of Sepphoris, which is not shown on here, but it is just a little south of Nazareth. Sepphoris was built by Roman governors and one of the kings. Huge population moved there. What was Jesus' job, they say? Carpenter. He probably was working in Sepphoris. Yes. Yes, Tsipori. Okay, so Nazareth was a backwater. It probably had 100 families. There were illiterate farmers and day workers. And guess what? The name of it doesn't even appear in the Tanakh. So it was pretty inconsequential. But he was called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene in the New Testament. So why Bethlehem? That's kind of random. Or not. The prophets said, and you Bethlehem Ephratah, you should have been the lowest class of Judah, which is down in the south, from you shall emerge for me, capital M, for, for God, to be a ruler over Israel. Hmm. It's a prediction in the prophets that the ruler would be from Bethlehem. Why? Who was from Bethlehem? King David. And the truth is, the Messiah had to be a descendant of David's family. 
So, because look what it says in Isaiah, I'm still back on the Tanakh, not in the New Testament. It says, and it shall come to pass the root of Jesse, that's David's father, right? Yeshai, which stands as a banner for peoples. To him shall the nations inquire, and his peace shall be with honor. That's where the Messiah should come from. That was from Bethlehem. And then... What the New Testament did with the subject of Bethlehem is they manipulated the story a little bit. Now, this is my words. You would not find this in a church. This is my words based on history and on the logic. Because Bethlehem doesn't show up much in the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus. It shows up a couple of times. When... So Matthew, for example, who's one of the, one of the Gospels um, and was one of the followers of Jesus, wrote, when King David heard this, he was disturbed. He had called people together because he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, because that's what the prophet has written, i.e., the prophet from the Old Testament said the new Christ needed to be born in Bethlehem. All right, so let's pretend that actually he was born in Bethlehem. How do we create a scenario where he happens to be in Bethlehem or his parents happen to be in Bethlehem? Well, it turns out that there was a census taken of people, and Bethlehem was the center of the Judean census. So in theory, everybody in Judea had to go to Bethlehem to register. And this from Luke, which is another gospel, says, So Joseph went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there basically to register for the census. Okay, just, I'm just saying, maybe he was born in Bethlehem, maybe he wasn't, probably doesn't matter. The only matters because it makes him, it confirms his descent from King David. Okay, so maybe we have to match the facts to the predictions. Okay. So, let's go on to something else that's kind of curious. Was Mary a virgin? Well, I, I mean, I can sh I'll show you what the problem was. Okay, and part of the problems, by the way, are in translation, right? But it's not translation into English. It's translation from the Aramaic or the Hebrew that the original Gospels were written in or were talked about and translated into Greek. The first full Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, was translated into Greek. That's how it got through the rest of the 20 centuries. It was from the original <laughs> Greek. Okay, so let's see where this virgin business comes from. Not that I, you know, okay. 
So, Isaiah, look who we have again. Therefore, the Lord of his own shall give you a sign. The young, behold, the young woman is with child, and she shall bear a son. There's the prediction from Isaiah, right? From Nevi'im. The Hebrew word that he uses is Alma. Ah, really? Maiden. Isaiah said Alma. That became translated later on as a totally different word from the Hebrew because the Hebrew for virgin, virgin is betula. And if you have signed a ketubah, the woman is called betula in the ketubah. Ah. But they were translating incorrectly the prophecy from Isaiah predicting a young maiden. Okay? And in fact, to get a little gossipy, you know who doesn't show up in the New Testament much at all? Joseph. In fact, Jesus is called son of Mary. He's not called Bar Yosef. He's not called Ben Yosef. He's not called any of that. Always Mary. So was he his father in fact? And some, I don't know, some people, maybe it was she was raped by a Roman soldier. I mean, certainly the father of Jesus has absolutely no role of any sort, really, in the New Testament. So that's just, some, that's just an oddity. We see him, he's going to the census, and he disappears from, from any part of the story, really. Maybe he just died. Oh, except that Jesus had a lot of brothers. He's not an only child by any means. He has a lot of brothers. So Mary, let's say, is married to somebody. Okay, maybe it's Joseph. I don't know. His name just doesn't come up much. Okay. So, here's what we know about Jesus before the age of about 25. Nothing. We know nothing. He could have been working. This is the archaeological dig in Sipori. He could have been working there. Probably illiterate. Man of the people. Not having anything to do with the rebellions going on around him. Nothing. And I say nothing from the New Testament. We don't see him as a little boy. We don't see him as anything. The first time we see him is when he gets baptized by a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was another one of these, the end of the world is coming, roaming around, preaching, making people follow him, very charismatic, and one way that you wash away sins in Judaism, take the mikvah, right, is to be put into water. And this is what John the Baptist was doing to everybody who would come to visit John the Baptist. We really don't know much about him at all. 
He was sort of a wild man. He pops up in Richard Strauss's uh, opera, as we were talking. We were talking about German operas before. His head ends up on a platter. Um, that's Salome. But mostly, he seemed to be preaching, and he seemed to be preaching up in the Galilee area. So the River Jordan is there, and there's some a story that John the Baptist baptized him, which meant he was clean and pure, and he had a spiritual awakening. And that's at age 30. Question? Correct. Exactly. It's very telling. Water is very significant. It's very, it's, okay. So Jesus, somewhere around his 30th year, after he gets baptized, he abandons his home and he starts to preach. He wanders around the desert a little bit and then he begins to preach. And he's gathering crowds. I don't personally think he was gathering crowds because he was a lunatic or was calling for rebellion. I think what he was doing was very spiritual. Now this is a depiction of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the same as any other thing. He was saying to these people who had had it with the Romans, don't worry, the world to come is going to happen. Believe in God, trust that there will be a better world, be devout, and things will take care of themselves. Never ever did he say, and fight against the Romans. In fact, you know what really, really ticked him off? The priest. He said the priests were corrupting Jerusalem. The priests were corrupting the temple. He was inflamed by that. It became a matter of his preaching, so much so that when he was 33, he made a pilgrimage, Shalosh Regalim, right? People made pilgrimages three times a year, Sukkot, Shavuot, and Pesach. And on Pesach, he made the trip from the Galilee where he was preaching to Jerusalem. He didn't go for a sacrifice. He wasn't going for anything religious. He was going because he was really, really angry. And so we have very famous depictions. By the way, I forgot to tell you, he gathered not just all the people around him, but he had a core of 12, what we now know as disciples. Some of them were his brothers. They followed him everywhere. They were part of his inner circle, but they also acted as messengers carrying his prophetic words. Nobody said he was holy. All they're saying is, listen, the, the world will be better for you. So I can, I'll name you the apostles. 
James, John, Philip, Andrew, Andrew's brother Simon, who later changed his name to Peter, and he is the one that founded the church in Rome. Matthew, Jude, James, Thomas, doubting Thomas, he doubted the resurrection. Bartholomew, Simon, and Judas. Okay, a couple of Simons. They're all Jewish names. But they were like ambassadors. They went off to villages. So I think he was a very charismatic figure. I have, throughout my years of studying um, both him and other people throughout history, there have been charismatic figures that just have a way with words, have a way with pulling you in. I, Martin Luther King, okay, just had a way of you wanting to listen, wanting to change the world. Somebody like that. I, I don't think he was a mild-mannered guy. I think he, he really believed in what he was saying in people. And he also performed miracles according to the New Testament. He created fishes and from, yes? Right. So, I mean, to multitude, yes. Again, this is moving into the Greek and where the mistakes were made. But in order for him to have some kind of, let's say, um, reputation, you know, to solidify it, miracles didn't hurt. Right? So, okay, so I mean, he went into somebody and he talked to them and they were suddenly not sick. I mean, it was, it was just part of the mystique. But okay, and he never referred to him as Messiah himself. Never. In all the New Testament, yes? The disciples stayed there or did they come after? After. After. No. Okay. So he goes now to the temple, and it's Pesach. Very important to remember that. He enters the temple, and he's livid. The temple courtyard, you know, the temple was gigantic, and it had an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard, and then the Holy of Holies. And then the outer courtyard is where the main people, you know, could gather. And there, it was like a shopping mall. Because if you needed to sacrifice something, you could buy animals there. You had money changers because people were coming from all over in order to pay the priests. It was, it was pandemonium in the outer courtyard. He never went, his job, he didn't want to go in the Holy of Holies. He was just furious about the whole um, secularization of the temple, shall I call it, or the monetization of the temple, let's call it that. So when he went in, according, this is according to the New Testament now, he overturned the tables of the money changers, he drove out the vendors, he released all the animals, um, he blocked the entrance to the courtyard, he stood there and said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Interesting where we get those little, the phraseology. Now the priests, of course, were probably hiding in their back room. They really did not want anything to do with this disruption that was going on. And 
he then left. And there were no Romans up there, by the way. It's a Jewish thing. People would come for their sacrifice um, three times a year. You know, it's really hard to tell um, the 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 Western Wall that's there now was the outer outer wall of the Holy Temple, right? So it would have been up the stairs and then beyond that. It doesn't necessarily mean where the mosque is, but it's just it's a big courtyard. I mean, I think geographically, even though they're archaeologically fighting over that there was no temple really right there, whatever. It was it was the outer court. That's all you need to know. Hmm? There was an article in the New York Times. You can look it up. <laughs> Half, it two, like two weeks ago. Okay. And also, you know, it's very interesting that he, that he did this during the time of Pesach because it's liberation, right, holiday. So he was he was really angry, and then after I mean, and who do you think he was anyway to like cause chaos here? So he fled. He walked out with his followers, and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is sort of in a valley across. There's a monastery there in um, outside of the old city, and he goes to according to the New Testament, share a Passover meal, and then he's ratted out by a, one of his followers named Judas. According to the New Testament, he was charged with sedition. So that's, to me, sort of understandable, I guess, because the man was creating havoc in the Roman Empire, right? Except that what the Gospels do is they say he was arrested by Jews. And so here's a question. The New Testament says that the Sanhedrin, which was the court of the Jews, sent for him and had him arrested. And then they tried him and then they turned him over to Pontius Pilate and the Romans. That's what it says in the New Testament. Here's why it's not likely. Biggest glaring error, it's Pesach. Sanhedrin is not going to meet on Pesach. They're just not. Happened to be a Shabbat also. Not going to meet on Shabbat. Plus, what is, what's their problem with him? If he were going to be arrested and dealt with by Jewish authorities, and let's say the ultimate punishment was going to happen to him, he would have been stoned. But he hasn't done anything to warrant that, but in the New Testament it says he was arrested by the Sanhedrin. Okay? I would allege that the Sanhedrin could not have for the number of reasons that I've told you. And just out of curiosity, if the Sanhedrin, let's say somehow that they tried him, 
and that his crime, according to them, was blasphemy. He was taking on too much authority. Stoning, again, is the punishment. So, who is Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor that was placed in Jerusalem to try to calm everything down. He was a nasty, nasty guy. This man, Jesus, is a threat. Somehow, the Romans arrested Jesus. Pontius Pilate was a very busy man. However, according to the New Testament, Pontius Pilate was very interested in this man. He questioned him. And then he went to the window because it was Pesach. And he said, I am going to free one person who has been arrested. And one of them is named Barabbas, and one of them is named Jesus. And all of you people out there in the courtyard below the governor, I'm going to give you guys the choice of who I should save, Barabbas or Jesus. And according to the New Testament, the people in the courtyard who were Jews said Barabbas. Hence, Pontius Pilate said, "His, I wash my hands of this. His blood will be on you. Okay? Everyone understand that anecdote? His, the responsibility for the death of Jesus is on the Jews because you saved Barabbas. And so, he was crucified. Now, just to be technical and scientific about it, what crucifixion does is you die of asphyxiation because you can't get a breath because there's, there's a tremendous amount of pressure when you're hanging. And so it can be a very, very excruciating death. And in his case, of course, he was also stabbed in the side, and, or at least that's according to the New Testament. But it was with other people. There were other people on Golgotha, which, by the way, there's a whole discussion of where that is. And there's pictures in on Google, basically, but they're from archaeological sort of theories. Where is Golgotha? Where was it? Because there is no monument there. And you think about it, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or the old city, nobody ever points out, oh, and by the way, that's where the crucifixion happened. That, by the way, is not important, because what was important was that he was then taken to a cave, a burial tomb, and there's plenty of them in Israel to visit. And he was buried. And then three days later, when they went to pray at the tomb, the big boulder that was in front of the tomb had been rolled away, and his body was gone. Hence, he was resurrected. And for the next 40 days, he went around performing miracles. So... In the 4th century CE, Queen Helen 
from, um, of Macedonia, Constantine's mother, went to, uh, went to Judea, Palestine, it was Palestina then it was called, and said, where was Jesus buried? And oh, you're mad, here. And she went, okay, put a sign, church. Where was he born? We're going to take you to Beth, right there. All of the sites that were named and have been the Via Dolorosa, all of those things, named by her in the fourth century. So this lovely building and the tomb, and she found relics of the cross and brought them back, and okay? So it was sort of mythology that created, and, and I don't mean to sound disparaging because we really don't know where anything happened, but it is because of her selection of these sites based on local, local lore that we even have these. Okay, so you say, so we're done. We now know about Jesus and we have some questions historically, but you know, he certainly existed and he shows up a little bit in, um, in history books, but the story's not quite over because along came a man whose name was Saul. Never met Jesus, born in Damascus. Remember last week we were talking about Abraham's journey from Haran, and as he came down, he went to Shechem first, but the Christians say he went to Damascus first. So this guy Saul came from Damascus. He was Jewish, and he had a vision about Jesus. And he was another sort of eager leader kind of a guy. And he went in to the, to the temple... This is 20 years after Jesus died. Had an argument with Jesus' brother, who was in charge of this small group of people that were followers of Jesus. Raised havoc, it says in the New Testament. His name was Saul. And he began to preach all over. He had a sort of a transformation. And so he changed his name to Paul. And he began to travel throughout the Middle East, bringing the message of Jesus throughout what we saw was in Judea. Now, the story of Jesus a lot of the stories about Jesus are in letters that are in the New Testament and constitute books of the New Testament, the epistles, written by Paul about Jesus. Never met him. The Gospels, Gospel means good word, the four primary Gospels from which we get the history of Jesus' life, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, never met him. All written afterwards. 
So when they talk about the birth of Jesus, for example, and you compare the four stories, there's differences. They don't completely match up. If you go to Luke and if you go to John, those are the most anti-Jewish. Those are the ones that claim that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus for two reasons. One, the Sanhedrin first arrested him, and then the situation with Pontius Pilate saying, who do we choose? So I'm going to end, well, I have one more slide after this, but pretty much with our friend, the timeline, to show you that this is roughly when Jesus was born. He died in roughly 33 common era, and this was when the Gospels were written. Okay, so it's hard for me to, it's roughly speaking the year 100. Okay, and it's the largest religion in the world today. Any questions? Yes. Did the people who, 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 I mean, let's, maybe, I don't, we don't have, we don't have facts to support that. There was a very fervent group of believers at Jesus's death that sort of formed a very strong cult around the fact that he had resurrected. They were still Jews. When Saul, Paul came along and really began to spread the word of Jesus, these Jews were angry at him. The, the sort of tight cohorts of Jesus were angry at him, especially as I said, they got, he and Jesus' brother got into a fist fight. However, the Romans were attracted by it. And so what Paul was doing is he was going to pagans and basically spreading his religion through the pagans. So Jewish people who followed Jesus, Jewish Christians at that point, was not a big and powerful group. The second it went to the Romans, okay, second it began to spread there, his converts, his people who are being persuaded, are Romans, they're pagans. That's, ha that's who he's converting, that's how the religion gets spread. Okay, so the Jews didn't buy it. Small group, first century, we are followers, some other people did, mostly they didn't buy it. And then when they were supposed to be converted, they refused and said he wasn't the Messiah. We know that. And they were then persecuted. Hence the beginning of the word anti-Semitism. Starting way back from them because they basically rejected the concept of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, so have I completely confused you or given you, I mean, I think you should go to the New Testament and read it. It's very interesting. 
It's stories. It's exhortations. It's follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. It is letters to written by Paul to the people of all of these locations telling them why they should believe. Paul really structured the religion of Christianity after Jesus was dead. Yes? I mean, you can get them for nothing in hotels. <laughs> <laughs> right, they want you to take them from hotels. So, um, no, I, I think I think we Jews have a lot in common with Christianity. We um, are the writers of the first half of the their Bible, but the predictions that happened in the Tanakh, in the prophets, we believe haven't happened yet. That's the difference. That's really the fundamental difference. And we still believe in that, you know? So, but it's not a primary thing. Ellen. Um, and I don't remember exactly how it breaks down, but I took some class on, like, the Christian Bible. And even their Old Testament, they have, Oh, it's different. It's different. The prophets, I think, are in different order. Yes. And so, whereas we think that, you know, the Old Testament that they know is our Torah. Right. They've actually made changes and yes. changed into sequencing. So That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, it's... it's it's the same. I mean, it's 99% the same in terms of what's in it. Remembering that it got translated to Greek, and when it got translated to Greek, some of it was changed in order to fit the story, right? right? But also they did change the order around. So you'll see some of the prophets are not in the same order, which is confusing when you're looking it up. Yes. Paul did it. Paul did it. I mean, I think it was within the first hundred years. It wasn't, it was the commandments that had to do with the temple, and it was the commandments in Leviticus for Kashrut. But it didn't mean that they gave them, it, it, they, their job was, um, a Christian belief is belief in God does not require the commandments. Okay? That's basically, it requires belief. It requires faith. And so it was an opposition on some level to sort of normative Judaism. Yes. But I think it also got evolved when Paul and his uh, successors were attempting to attract pagans. You know, what did they want with 613 commandments? Well, or kashrut, I mean, I, you know, or sacrifices in the temple for that matter. You know, the temple, of course, didn't last much longer. The temple was destroyed in 70. So after Jesus died by the Romans. Okay.